Well, have you ever gotten into a spiritual conversation with someone and they say, yeah, I used to go to church. But you know what? When I was at church, people treated each other terribly. They gossiped about each other. They, they insulted one another. They talked behind each other's backs. They saw the, the sin, the discord, the backbiting, the slander, the unbiblical judgments or whatever, and they said, nope, that's enough for me. I'm done. Maybe they saw their parents go through that as they were younger kids. And all in all, they came to a position of something like, well, if that's how people in the church treat each other, then I'm done. I like the world better. It happens a lot. I think we've all seen it. Did it happen in the first century church in Rome? Absolutely. And so that's what Paul is going to talk about today. Why does this happen and what do we do about it? So head over to Romans 14 if you're not there. Last week we Roman, we Romaned, we Romaned <laughs> through chapter 14 up through 12. We talked about the conscience. Remember the scene in Rome, cosmopolitan city. We have Jews and we have Gentiles. We have Jews with a, a background in the old covenant law where everything was regulated. They're what they could eat, what, what days they celebrated as feasts, what they wore, all of that stuff. Now they become saved, and now they're in this major metropolitan Las Vegas, New York City city with Gentile believers who don't know anything about food laws, don't know anything about feast days, and don't really care. And the Jewish brothers still had that conscience that tied them to their food laws and their, their feast days. They had weak consciences about such things. But the Gentile believers, they had strong consciences in the sense that it didn't even matter to them. How were they supposed to move forward in the church at Rome with all this tension hanging in the background? And so first, we remember that we're never to judge another believer's conscience on disputable matters, but rather to be fully convinced in our own minds that what we're doing is honoring to God. We strive to get to that judgment day with as clean of a conscience about these things as possible. Remember, no two consciences are the same on everything. There's always going to be overlap. There's always going to be things that are different with disputable matters and the consciences that we have due to our backgrounds and all of those things. And there's only one conscience, so to speak, that is completely correct. And it's not ours. Nobody's conscience is completely correct. Only the Holy Spirit itself who tries to conform us to that. And so our consciences on disputable matters need calibration. And we calibrate with the word of God and we balance it with love for God and love for others. This week, Paul continues down this path of the implications of someone with a weaker conscience on certain things and he is very clear on the dangers of pushing someone too hard on their conscience, even to the point of destruction of their faith. Look at verse 13 of Romans 14. Therefore, he says, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but decide, rather, never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of another. Right away, we have a giant therefore in verse 13, so we know we've got to hit the brakes and see what it's there for. And we know that it connects, then, this passage with the previous passage. So whatever Paul's saying now is built upon everything he just said in the first 12 verses or so. He says, therefore, he says, don't be passing judgment on one another, rather, but instead decide, or literally judge, judge this, never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of your brother or sister. There's a play on words here in the Greek, and it demonstrates both uses or two uses of the word judge. 
The first use of the word judge means to condemn, and maybe that's the way that people think of it immediately. Like, don't judge me is kind of a, a pseudonym for don't condemn me. That's one use of the word judge is to condemn. Another use of the word judge is to assess. It's like looking at metals to see how pure they are. We do hundreds of judgments all day long. Y'all got up, went to your closets, and said, that's what I'm wearing today. I judged and I decided that's what I'm wearing today. We decide how fast we're going to drive. We decide what behavior is good or not good for our kids. We decide what flavor ice cream we want to eat. All those are judgments in the sense of the word. So there's two uses of the word judge here, and Paul uses both of them in the first verse, in 13. One commentator puts it this way. If you're so keen on judging, uh, judging things, here's something for you to judge how not to trip each other up. Judge that if you want to judge something. How would they get tripped up? Well, by putting a stumbling block or a hindrance in their way. The Christian life is often referred to as a walk. And so on that walk, just like a hike up stairway or something, you could have something in your path. Picture a big tree that fell down. You know, stairway's hard enough to hike, right? And now you got this tree down, so you got to climb over it or go around it. And, And Paul's worry here is that if there's enough of a hindrance or enough of a stumbling block, then maybe they'll just turn around and head back down the mountain and give up. Why bother doing this if everybody's going to make it so hard? How does that relate to our consciences? Well, by forcing a weaker brother or sister to do something that they're convinced in their hearts that they cannot do, we're literally putting a tree or rock pile in the way of their spiritual progress. We're setting up a danger on their path that they might trip and hurt themselves spiritually, or worst case, again, turn around and just give up. Say, I'm not going over that. Forget it. What sorts of things are in view here in the context? Well, Paul explains. Look at verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing in itself is unclean, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, then you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So he's clearly still talking about the old covenant food laws here for Israel that are no longer in effect for new covenant believers in Christ. I had bacon this morning to the glory of God. (laughs) Paul says to himself, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing, keyword, is unclean. So we know he's talking about the food laws there. He says, I know this, and I am persuaded that nothing is unclean even in and of itself. And he says that again in verse 20. He says, everything is indeed clean. Food laws for ethnic geographic Israel are no longer in effect. We see it twice in this passage. We see it in 1 Timothy 4.4, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. And the Lord Jesus Christ tells us himself in Mark, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. So scripture is very clear. The food laws for new covenant believers are no longer in effect. But again, remember the old covenant Jewish believers who now have been brought up in that for decades. But think again about Paul. Paul's an ex-Pharisee. Paul was one of those Jewish believers who not only was brought up in those food laws and those feast days for decades, he was teaching others how to do that, and he was cracking down on the people who weren't. 
And so now this is Paul himself. We talked about it last week, that quote from, I think it was Schreiner, what a jungle Paul's conscience must have been when he became a Christian. He had to sort through all of that stuff. And now Paul, ex-Pharisee, ex-enforcer of the food laws and everything else, says, I know, I know in my heart all foods are clean. But, he says, they're unclean for anyone who thinks they are unclean. Even though the old covenant food laws have been fulfilled in Christ, in verse 14, right? There are no more foods that are unclean, but, but they are unclean for anyone who thinks they are unclean. Meaning, if a Jewish Christian still has his conscience all twisted around the axle about certain foods, they are still unclean to them. Not technically, not according to the word, but to them, to their heart. And so what does that mean for us? Look at verse 15. This is, well, if your brother is grieved by what you're eating, you're no longer loving him well. Don't destroy, second time we see that, don't destroy, well, will be, don't destroy your brother for food. Don't destroy your brother's faith because of what you are eating. It's another command, very strong language. Can we actually destroy a Jewish brother by pushing them too hard on these things? Paul says yes. Just like the person who's hiking the Appalachian Trail and says, forget it. I'm not doing it. It's too hard. Too many obstacles. So might a Jewish believer pack it in and say, you know what? This just isn't worth it. You know who doesn't give me static about food laws? My brother's back at the synagogue. That's who doesn't give me static about food laws. I'm going back there. Dr. Schreiner puts it this way. Paul fears that the weak may abandon the faith and return to the synagogue. What is so tragic about all this is the church is supposed to be the place of love and grace because we've been shown love and grace in Jesus Christ. But if we judge each other harshly on these disputable matters like food laws, we are not walking in love and we might just destroy the faith of someone who is weak in these things. How many people have walked away from the faith because of petty issues that got in the way of their faith? How many people have thrown their hands up at Christianity because of the way they see supposed brothers and sisters in Christ treat each other? Lots. And that's what Paul's talking about today. So first point, we are here to help, not hinder, each other's spiritual growth. We're here to help and not hinder each other's spiritual growth. The Apostle John puts it like this, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. If you love someone, you're not going to make them stumble. You're going to make their path as clear as possible for them to walk and grow in maturity. And once again, we're back to love. I feel like the last like, month we've been back here time and time again. Greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does that look like? Well, loving him with everything we have, including our relationships, which bend out horizontally then. We love each other as much as we love ourselves. In order to love God the way we need to, we have to love our brothers and sisters as much as we love ourselves. Paul says, you want to love them? Stop making it so hard for them. Stop giving them static. You want to judge something? Judge this. How I am doing at making the spiritual growth path of my brother or sister as clear and smooth as possible. Judge your own selves in that. Am I making it harder or easier for someone else to follow Christ? We are here to help, not hinder each other's spiritual growth. There are dozens of one another commands in the New Testament, right? We can't do that without the local church. 
That's why a local church being part, being a member of, ideally, a local church is so important because you literally can't fulfill the greatest, second greatest commandment without the church. You can't want another people if you're not around other people. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. We all need to be part of community. And how we live that, how we live that out, rather, is of vital importance, and it must be done in love. I mean, again, cookies on the bottom shelf here, guys. The idea in making and maturing disciples is to help each other be mature, not hinder each other. So how can we practically do that? Once again, the answers are not in the extremes. One extreme says, well, everything is a hindrance to me in the church. I can't go to church because no one talks to me. I can't go to church because everybody else is married and I'm not. I can't go to church because I don't have kids and it seems like everybody on the planet has nine kids. I can't go to church because I'm not as spiritually mature as everyone else and I feel awkward. And we have to acknowledge on this one extreme where we say everything is a hindrance and I'm just not going to engage in community, right? That there's a lack of maturity in that. There's an oversensitivity to that. The weaker brother needs to grow stronger and sometimes we have to acknowledge the sinful oversensitivity of our consciences. <clears throat> we can do a lot of things to stop us or excuses uh, to, go, to not go to church, right? In other words, the prescription for everything is a hindrance to me in the church so I won't go, sometimes, guys, is a nice warm bowl of get over it. Sometimes we just have to do that. I love you. I really do. You guys all get A's because you're here. But sometimes we can put a lot of excuses in the way of going to church, right? That's, an, oh, that's one extreme. Everything's a hindrance. But the other extreme is not right either. Nothing's a hindrance. I'm never going to speak into someone else's life. We're called to be in each other's lives, and that means speaking up where we see sin. And hopefully... Others calling out sin in our own lives as well. Some obstacles are put in our path not to block us, but to cause us to grow as we need to go around them and overcome them. That's part of the church. That's part of maturing. And so if we have another extreme where we say, don't say anything to anybody, don't even think of putting an obstacle in someone's path, that's not right either. There's got to be that balance once again. Some obstacles are to grow us, not to block our faith. We just kicked off a new year of our shepherding program for members this week, so encouraging. But shepherding means accountability and submitting to one another and being helped spiritually. So the application of this is not that everything in church is a hindrance, so I won't engage. And neither is that nothing is going to be a hindrance because I don't want to say anything to anybody and be a clicky social club where we never talk about things. But rather, it's the balance of having a correctly calibrated conscience according to the word of God, balancing that with love and speaking the truth when we need to, but not putting any unnecessary stumbling blocks in the way of our brother or sister about disputable matters. We have freedom in Christ, but we have to make sure that that freedom is used correctly and properly. Otherwise, the gospel can be seen in a negative light. And that's where Paul goes next. <clears throat> I'm going to take a little spray encouragement here. Talk amongst yourselves. 
right, verse 16. It says this, So do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Paul answers the question, why is this so important that we get this right? Because it affects how unbelievers see the gospel. That's right. How we treat each other in the church doesn't just stay within these walls. The world is watching, and the world watches how we treat each other in the church, how we treat Christians, how we talk about Christians. And again, it could lead to that attitude of that's what the church is about. That's how people treat each other there. Forget it. I'm out. Freedom in Christ is a good thing. Not being under the rigors of the ceremonial law for Israel is a good thing. But if we use our freedom as a club to beat our weaker brother or sister into submission, the world sees that. And the gospel's distorted. I wonder how many Jewish Christians in the first century actually did walk away from Christianity. Because of how static they got about food laws or ceremonies or, or feast days or how they dressed or whatever. Had to be a thing back then. It is a thing today as well. This is what Paul means when he says, what you regard as good, which is freedom in Christ, could be regarded as evil. People would see the way then you treat and judge incorrectly and harshly your brother or sister on these disputable matters. And what you see as good, which is true, freedom in Christ, is now seen as evil, is seen as bad. Why? Because you're missing the point of the kingdom of God. It's not about feeding your own appetites and shoving your freedom in Christ in your brother's face. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what it's about. If your Jewish brother with a weak conscience can't eat pork with a clean conscience, for crying out loud, be sensitive to that, Paul says. Don't mock him. Don't make him do it. Don't shove your freedom in his face. Excuse me, Abraham, pass the shrimp wrapped in bacon over here this way, please. They're serving Christ. That's how they're honoring God. Like we said last week in uh, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 14, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats it eats it in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Don't be mocking them for that. Don't be judging them for that. That's how they're serving the Lord. That's how they're thanking the Lord. He drops another command in verse 19. So then, pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. First of all, again, what's the context? Where is this taking place? The church. It's taking place in the local church, the church of Jesus. And Paul says the church must be a place of peace and mutual upbuilding. Again, the church is not a place where we try and get our own way where we try and have our own appetites and preferences satisfied. We have to have an eye towards others, especially the spiritual health and maturity of others, considering our own needs as less important than others. Here's the second point. We are to seek mutual growth, not self-gratification. We're to seek mutual growth, not self-gratification. The old commentator Murray puts it this way. When questions of food and drink become a chief concern, then it is apparent how far removed from the interest of God's kingdom our thinking and conduct have strayed. 
In other words, you've lost sight of the main point of church, which is to glorify God, not glorify yourself, not feed your own appetites. You're to seek mutual growth, not self-gratification. Jesus also put it strongly in Matthew chapter 6, in verses 31 through 33, where he says this, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Okay, these are the obsessions. For the Gentiles seek after all those things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of those things will be added to you. We've got to keep the order correctly. We can't just seek these these ways to satisfy our own selfish appetites, and then we'll seek the kingdom of God. No, we seek the kingdom of God first in peace and mutual upbuilding about disputable matters, and then we'll see fit how to satisfy our own desires and the desires of the others. So how do we apply this in the church today right now? I'll give you again two more extremes to avoid. It's not about us, but it's neither all about others either. Reality, of course, in the middle is a balance. It's about God. First, it's not all about us. Just because we feel about a certain way, about a minor issue, it's not our job to convince our brothers and sisters in their conscience of our way of thinking. We aren't the Holy Spirit. The Trinity's full. There are no more job openings in the Trinity. You are not the junior Holy Spirit in trying to convince someone to come around to your way of thinking on a minor, disputable issue like food. Here's here's a noble concept. You might be wrong. I know we don't like to think like that as Americans. We're all wrong about something. Maybe we're off base on something. And you're going to go around and try to recalibrate someone else's conscience on a minor matter? That brings up the point, right? We are talking about disputable matters. We're not talking about first-order doctrinal issues like we talked about last week. And how to tell the difference of them? Two things I'll give you. How clear is the issue in the Bible and how close is it to the gospel? How can you tell what's a disputable matter and what's not? How clear is it in the Bible and how close is it to the gospel? The example we used last week was from the church in Galatia. The position was circumcision, which was the the sign of the covenant of the old covenant, right? The law. And one party said that is still required for Gentile believers to follow this sign of the old law for salvation. It is extremely clear in the Bible that that is not the case. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not by observing the law. So it's very clear. It's also very, very close to the gospel. We're talking about salvation here. If someone says you need to follow the old law in this way in order to be saved, we're talking about the gospel right there. So it's very clear, and it's very close to the gospel. And so sorry, whatever your conscience might say about this is wrong. That's how we calibrate our conscience. That's how we tell what is a a disputable matter. Food laws, for example, very clear in Scripture that they have been fulfilled by Christ and are no longer in effect for new covenant believers. But how close is it to the gospel? Well, if you're going to say it's for salvation, then it becomes very close. But if it's, as Paul says, a disputable matter, it's not that far away. Let them be what they want to be. Let them do what they want to do. Again, the difference that Paul comes down on circumcision versus the food laws is very, very uh, different. And what about the other stream? So if it's not all about us, neither is it really about the other person completely. 
Why? Because then we're getting into people-pleasing. Then we're getting into the idolatry of, I wonder what they think. Then we're getting into the idolatry of trying to please everyone with all of their different preferences, which never works. Never works anyway, and it definitely doesn't work in the church. This is where the victim mentality starts to creep into the church. This is where CRT and the idea that we're all oppressed in some way because of our identity and our feelings are not being recognized. And so if you don't do exactly what I want you to do, then you're doing violence and harm to me. And it's not all about other people either. We can't cater to other people's all, right? The extreme. We can't just be chasing other people's opinions the whole time. And again, another example to illustrate this would be homosexuality. Again, crystal clear, with blinding clarity, that homosexuality is universally condemned as sin in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and from Jesus himself, and in church history, not to mention good old common sense. But some may say, I don't feel that that is true. And so guess what, church? You have to cater to my needs, to who I am, to my identity. Wrong. We do not. That's not what the Bible says. And so it's not all about us, neither is it all about just trying to satisfy everyone else's thoughts about who they are and how they need to be loved. Jesus gives us this answer once again from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus told his disciples, this is our attitude. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what we're called to do especially in disputable matters, especially when we're talking about these things. We're called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow me. Why? Because we still have sin in here, and sin impacts us on a daily basis. Sin affects everything that we have, even as Christians. It could creep in. Pride creeps in. Distorted views creep in, right? Uh, Immature views from the Bible creep in. Maybe just a lack of biblical knowledge creeps in. We don't understand. And that affects the way we live. So we have to remember, I might be wrong. I have to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow me instead of just push my own way. Instead of just cater to everybody. We have to cater, in a sense, to pleasing and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20. Paul says, Do not then, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Paul repeats the command to not destroy your brother, That's twice he said that. Do not destroy your brother over this. And he also repeats the biblical truth, right, that we just said, because of Christ, all foods are clean. But we are not to cause our brother or sister to stumble with what we eat. And he gives some practical instruction. It's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, this has long been taken out of context to use as a spiritual club against drinking alcohol in some ways. Right? But we've got to remember the context in this. What is the context? Context is food laws, ceremonial things, old covenant stuff. And so the Jews probably aren't worried about getting hammered, and they're not sensitive to that. They're probably worried about, is this wine kosher? 
Where, where else has this wine been used in sacrifice ceremonies of an idol or something like that? So we've got to remember the context there and keep it in context, right? But does that mean that we should just then, taking, putting in our context, go around drinking alcohol in front of anyone and everyone in the church? Absolutely not. Because even though it's not the context here with the conscience from the Old Testament ceremonial impurity, a conscience can certainly be weakened if someone had an alcohol problem or if they grew up in a home with an alcoholic, for example. It's a great example of how we need to be sensitive to other people. It's a great example for how we need to know each other. You crack open a beer or whatever in front of someone else and you don't know where they're at. And if they have a conscience issue that then they see that and it brings them right back to where they were, you're doing the same thing. It's not exactly the same context, but certainly the same principle. So we need to know that for sure. And he gives a great example in drinking alcohol. We are to be aware and we are to be sensitive. And Paul's point is, here's a thought, just because you have freedom in Christ to do it doesn't mean you have to do it. You want to drink? Drink at home. Drink with people that you know are not going to be having a stirred up conscience by that. Same thing in the early church. Do you want to have all of the forbidden foods that a Jewish brother doesn't want and you know that they're sensitive to them? Don't be doing it in front of them. Or just let it pass. You can survive without bacon. I'm pretty sure you can survive without bacon. doesn't mean we have to express our freedom in Christ all the time. And in fact, again, going back to what Jesus said, what did he call us to do? Deny yourself. Take up the cross and follow me. Verse 22 clarifies what do we do here. It says, the faith that you have about these things, keep it between you and God. You want to be blessed and you want to be happy? Make sure your conscience is clear about what you're doing with yourself and make sure your conscience is clear about what you're doing in front of your brother and sister. The Bible tells us how to have a happier Monday, right here. You want to be happy? You want to be blessed? Start here. Have a clear conscience between you and God about what you're doing. Make sure that that is honoring to God and balanced with love for others. And have a clear conscience with what you're doing with your brothers and sisters. That will lead to joy. Everybody's after joy and blessing. Then in verse 23, he drops the theological formula here. Whoever doesn't have this clean conscience is condemned in doing whatever conscience is condemning him about because he doesn't do it with faith. And faith here, again, doesn't, it doesn't mean saving faith or two uses of the word judgment and two uses of the word faith. It just means a belief. Calvin said it's a fixed persuasion of the mind or a firm assurance and not of any kind, but what is derived from the truth of God. You better believe that what you're doing is good and you can do it with a clean heart before God and it's biblical. In other words, if you're waffling or hesitating about doing something and you feel guilty about it for doing it or even thinking about doing it, don't do it. Don't wound your conscience like that. If your conscience is bothering you about it, don't do it. Whatever doesn't proceed from the faith of a clean conscience is sin. Here's the point. We are to act in ways that are consistent with our consciences. We're to act in ways that are consistent with our consciences. Now, a couple major caveats here. Last week, we talked about our consciences, again, the need to be calibrated. Just because we feel a certain way on an issue doesn't necessarily mean it's right. We have to look at these things 
biblically in the Word of God to see what the actual truth says. There are lots of people that are walking around in this world that have conscience issues about something that have never read what the Bible says about those things. Read what the Bible says about those things, and it'll be wonderful how the Holy Spirit then will show you where to go. Don't just, be, don't just go on hearsay. Don't just go on what the guy on YouTube said. Don't just go on your upbringing. See for yourself what the Bible says. Calibrate your conscience using the Bible, but then you have to balance that with the love of God and others. That part is massively important. If we are fully convinced in our mind that we are doing what the Holy Spirit and God tells us to do, and yet we look in the rearview mirror and we see a trail of conflict and destructed relationships, destroyed relationships, you're not walking in love. Something's wrong there. Because that will bring peace and righteousness, as we just heard. And so first, we remember our consciences have to be calibrated. But second, when I say our consciences, I mean the royal hour. All of our consciences, right? We have to be aware of the consciences of our brothers and sisters. I'll give you another example of this that is right in the bullseye of this passage as far as application. It's the Lord's Day, Sunday. Now, cards on the table. You know my conscience on this. I've shared it all the time. I believe that the Sabbath is still in effect and it has been called the Lord's Day now. It's Sunday. We, we commemorate it just like the early church did And so Sunday is reserved for two things, worship and rest. It is special. It is different than all the other days of the week. And it happens on Sunday when we come together and when we worship together, when we grow in the faith and when we rest. And that's Sunday. That's not Thursday night or Tuesday morning. That's Sunday. Now, how do we worship and rest? That's where the rub is, right? How do we worship and rest? This is not as clear and not as close to the gospel. So therefore, how you observe the Lord's Day is a classic disputable matter. Okay? This is right where this passage is talking about. How we are celebrating the Lord's Day. How we honor God. We had a great discussion in care group last week as we had people from all different types of backgrounds and convictions. Okay? We are, now, it, it's hard to, again, escape the reality that Item number one on a Sunday is gathering together to physically worship God, which you guys, again, all get an A-plus on, right? But then afterwards, what does that mean? How do, we, how do we worship and rest? People have different ideas of what that looks like. Having friends over from church and talking about the sermon or spiritual things, getting to know them, laughing with them, is restful, maybe. Some people think tinkering with a hobby is restful. Others find naps restful. I hope that I nap to the glory of God after this. Maybe even some of us find watching sports ball on a Sunday afternoon restful. Maybe some of, that find, some of you find that idolatrous. I'll leave that up to you to sort that out. If you grew up in a background that held the Lord's Day, that had lots of regulations that your parents inflicted on you, and now you have to try and flesh out what that looks like, you're going to probably have some conscious issues about that. For example, you might not go to movies on Sundays because you never went to a movie on a Sunday. And the thought of going to a movie on Sunday makes your conscience go, "Mm, I can't do that. Going out to dinner, spending money on a Sunday. Lots of people were growing up in that tradition where it's like, we don't do that. And, And do we give that a second thought? Classic disputable manner that we're working with today. And so don't think for a second that we don't have to worry about this because this is about 
Jewish people and their weird laws. No, this is, this is exactly what happens today. And the Lord's Day is a classic example of that. So to push through, so pretend you said, hey, let's go out after church. And the person's like, mm, I don't know. I don't like doing that. I don't like spending money. I don't like going to a restaurant on a Sunday. First of all, y'all need to speak up. <laughs> you need to say that. And you say, hey, quick chat, um, can we go over to my house or do something else? Because I really don't feel comfortable doing that. So you need to do that. But then the other person, now that's on you. You can't be like, what? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Dude, we're in the new covenant now. You don't have to worry about that. What is wrong with you? Come on, it'll break it. Come on, come on, come on. Let's go. Come on, get in the car. And that's a violation of this passage. Got to remember that. We've got to give space. Talk about it. That's a great conversation. It's a great conversation to talk about, right? Is your conscience going to bother you about what you do on a Sunday? Then don't do it. The key is, am I honoring God with it? Now, like I said, look at what the Bible has to say about these things. If you're just kind of going on autopilot because uh, maybe I grew up in a family where every single thing was regulated on a Sunday, look in the Bible. Decide for yourself. Is that where I actually am or not? Inform your conscience with the Word of God. Okay? But also, us Gentiles, which is probably 98% of us, right? maybe some of us who are non-reformed, right? the idea of Sunday's to Sunday. We go to church. I endure the bold guy for like 90 minutes, and we go home. We forget it ever happened. And I do whatever the heck I want to do on a Sunday. Sunday fun day. Mm, is it? Maybe the other side needs to think about that a little more, right? What we don't want to do is just go on autopilot here. Think about these things. And guess what then? No two consciences are going to be calibrated the same on those things. That's why we have to have grace. That's why we have to think about these things. That's why we have to act in ways that are consistent with our consciences and everyone's consciences. Not to please them, but to do so in honoring God. Now, we're all part of the same church, right? How do we get along? How do we act? We are, we, that's what we need to do. We need to act in ways that are consistent with all of our consciences, right? But do not, Paul says, under any circumstance, violate your own conscience or try to push someone else to violate theirs. You will do significant harm and maybe even destroy their fragile faith over a disputable matter. And why is violating our conscience such a big deal? Again, Schreiner helped us and put it like this. When a human being begins to act, or begin, when human beings begin to act contrary to their consciences, they no longer have an anchor for their lives. The center no longer holds, and now they are adrift and subject to the conviction and consciences of others. An authentic faith can't survive when one lives on the basis of the conviction of others. You see that? Sorry, Sherry. Do you see that? He says, your conscience is yours. And if you're just looking to other people to tell you what to believe about certain things, that's not healthy either. Because then you're just being tossed about like a wave in the, uh, of everyone else's opinions. You need to be, what he said last week, fully convinced in your own minds about these things. You need to be biblically understanding them, and you need to balance them with love. And let me tell you, you wonder how people do horrific things to other people. You wonder how they treat other people terribly. It's because they've wounded their conscience time and time and time again, and now there's no calibration. There's been a callous 
formed over their heart and their conscience. And you wonder, how did somebody just do that? How did somebody just say that? It's because they've shoved their conscience down so much, acted against their conscience that they warped it. That conscience is a gift. It's a gift from the Holy Spirit. And if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and you need to listen to that conscience. You need to always be in obedience with Scripture and, the, and, and your conscience. And if you just start ignoring that, guess what? You're going to start to get used to ignoring that little voice inside your head that tells you something's wrong. And that's how people do significant damage to themselves. That's why Paul is so upset about this. If we just continue to disregard our conscience and the conscious consciences of others, we will inevitably distort it or warp it or maybe even destroy it entirely. And then what? That only leads to spiritual destruction. So where does this leave us today? Here's the big idea. We are to use our freedom in Christ to build each other up in the faith. We are, used, we are to use our freedom in Christ to build each other up in the face. God has blessed us with different backgrounds, different emotions, different sensitivities. God has given us tremendous freedom in Christ. We are no longer under the yoke of the old covenant. But don't use that freedom to hinder or destroy the faith of your brother or sister. We're to use our freedom in Christ to build each other up in the faith, not tear them down. Sanctification, church is a community project. This is where, again, the evangelical, non-denominational, squishy, mega-seeker church, right, has, has done great damage to this because it's all about me and Jesus. It's all about my personal beliefs. It's all about my personal quiet times. It's all about my private spirituality. That's not what the Bible says. Yes, it is those things, but... The other component that you have to have is the community of the local church. That's where that gets walked out. So sanctification is a community project. Because if you're just by yourself, you think you're doing fine. Then if someone else comes, we do a great job of rationalizing our own sin, don't we? But then someone else comes and says, what is that exactly? What just happened there? Oh, that? Well, you know, I just learned to live with that. Well, that's called um, sin. Oh, no, it's not. No, it's not. It is. Whatever the case may be. That's why sanctification is a community project. We are to help each other, not hinder each other's spiritual growth. We are to seek mutual growth, not self-gratification. And we have to remember the conscience in all that. We are to act in ways that are consistent with all of our consciences. Not just ours, but we need to consider the consciences of others. And as we grow in Christ... The idea is that our consciences will grow with us. I've moved on a lot of things, not first-order doctrines, right? We should be evolving. We should be growing on these things. We have to give room for that, for other people as well to grow in that. And as we grow in Christ, our consciences will grow with us as we calibrate them with the Word of God and balance them with love. That's Paul's main point here. Using our freedom in Christ, not just selfishly, but to build each other up in the faith. I think we've all met people who refused to go to church because of bad experiences, of how people treated each other. Church, let's not let the good here at Highlands be spoken of as evil. Highlands, let's seek to be legit, authentic, biblical followers of Christ who use our freedom in Christ to build each other up in the faith and not tear each other down. Father, we thank you 
for this word. In many ways, it's hard for us to picture this strife in the early church because these things might be removed from us in the freedom that we have in Christ. Not many of us are of Jewish descent where we're familiar with these things, but Lord, we quickly come to realize that these things are in our lives today, that everyone's conscience is calibrated a little differently, that everyone has sensitivities about things that might be different from ours, and we pray that we would use our freedom in Christ to build each other up, to not put hindrances or tear our, our, the faith of our brothers and sisters down. We ask this for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.